this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and an associate fellow of Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program. His most recent book, published by Hearst in February, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Our conversation today is about that crisis, the bitter dispute between Qatar and the Quartet, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. Christian, now welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you briefly recap for our listeners how this feud came about? Well, the blockade or the embargo, depending on the language you use, of Qatar by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain and Egypt began on June the 5th, 2017, when those four countries calling themselves the Anti-Terror Quartet closed, uh, suspended political, economic and uh, land and sea links with Qatar on the grounds that they viewed Qatar as being a regionally destabilizing actor. And uh, two weeks later, the same four states issued a hastily drawn up list of 13 demands, which they wanted the Qatari authorities to uh, accede to uh, in resp- in, uh, as a result of having the dispute uh, eased. Uh, those 13 demands included that Qatar downgrade its ties political relationship with Iran, that it uh, close Al Jazeera and other related media outlets, uh, that it uh, close a Turkish military base in Doha, or in Qatar that opened in 2015, and other measures that uh, really went back to Qatar's response to the Arab Spring in 2011-2012, and almost forced would have forced the Qataris to have apologized for their originally destabilizing actions and paid reparations to the blockading states for damages that uh, they perceived to have had inflicted as a result of Qatar's initial uh, least support for opposition movements in North Africa and elsewhere. And this really went back to that period of 2011-12 when Qatar was more relaxed about the pace and direction of change in the Middle East following the uprisings, whereas the Saudis and Emiratis especially were keen to clamp down in an authoritarian manner on any form of protest, uh, which they also saw happen in Bahrain in 2011, and were very keen to push a counter-revolutionary agenda across the region. So they viewed Qatar's support for the Arab Spring, at least in further away areas, such as North Africa, with deep suspicion. We had a first iteration of the row in 2014, when Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and the UAE withdrew their ambassadors from Doha for nine months. Uh, That was um, resolved in November 2014 by the Riyadh Agreement, when all parties in the Gulf came together and agreed to uh, stop any uh, intervention in other countries' affairs. And uh, that agreement itself became highly politicized in 2017 when the Saudis and Emiratis accused the Qataris of of, of breaking it, even though by taking their action against Qatar, it could be argued that actually the Saudis and Emiratis were the ones who uh, breached the agreement and then interfered in such a way in Qatar's domestic affairs, or at least tried to, through the attempted power play against Qatar in 2017. 
Uh, we also remember that this began in the, the blockade took place in the first six months of the Trump administration coming to office. And uh, the Saudis and Emiratis especially had really embraced President Trump and his inner circle. And I think acted in 2017 on the assumption that they would be given a green light and would be allowed to take action that under the former President Obama, they could not simply have had any chance of succeeding with. Now, but, but the trigger uh, for, the, for the blockade was this claim that originated uh, from Abu Dhabi that uh, Sheikh Tamim, the, the Qatari emir, had, uh, had made these statements. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and, and the significance of, of this, these allegations emerging from Abu Dhabi? Yeah, so President Trump went to Saudi Arabia on the 21st of May 2017. His first uh, foreign visit as president was to Riyadh. He called on all uh, Sunni Arab states to come together uh, against Iran to help the US contain Iran. And then two days later, the Qatar news agency was hacked. Um, it seems that uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, Russian hackers were somehow involved. And a, a fake news story was implanted on the website of the Qatar news agency, which uh, claimed that uh, Emir Tamim had made comments at a military graduation ceremony, um, calling for a closer relationship with Iran, uh, heavily criticizing the, US, uh, the Trump administration in the US, and making inflammatory comments that were then very quickly seized upon by media outlets in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which even though the comments were published in the middle of the night, uh, they, almost, it went, they went viral straight away. It was as if uh, Saudi and Emirati uh, media was simply waiting for the story to appear, and they then used that for a two-week campaign of uh, a vilification of Qatar and the Qatari leadership, which was the prelude to the blockade. And so it was very much an attempt, I think, to to really kind of justify the action they were taking later and linking it back to uh, the Riyadh summit and uh, casting Qatar as the sort of black sheep of the Gulf, the one that was sort of half in, half out in vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Of course, the military, uh, the, the, the comments were the, uh, at the military graduation had never been made. Uh, the emir had attended the graduation but had not spoken and uh, it subsequently came out that there had been the hack and the story had been implanted and was very quickly then picked up as a, as a justification for what came later. Do you, do you think that, as has been suggested, that uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi crown prince, was the prime instigator in this whole affair? And if so, what, what were his motives? Uh, there is a lot of uh, evidence that uh, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, was the, the main trigger, the main figure behind the decision to blockade Qatar. Mohammed bin Zayed has long had personal animosity towards Qatar, towards the Qatari leadership, especially of Emir Tamim's father, Sheikh Hamad, who was the Emir from 1995 until 2013 when he stood down, and the former Prime Minister of Qatar, Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim, who also stood down in 2013. This goes back to the 1990s, uh, even beforehand. And Mohammed bin Zayed also is obsessed with what he sees as an existential threat from uh, Islamism and from Islamist movements. I think partly because he is aware that within the UAE itself there are pockets of Islamist activity that he, he has seen as a threat. And so since the early 2000s, Mohammed bin Zayed has really followed a zero-sum uh, approach towards Islamism and a, a complete crackdown on all Islamist activity. 
And so he saw the Qatari kind of response to the Arab Spring, where the Qataris were more relaxed about Islamists winning elections in, in Egypt and in Tunisia and elsewhere. He saw that as a kind of really threatening uh, a move that would kind of gone counter to everything he was trying to do within the UAE and then across the Gulf as well. So Mohammed bin Zayed was the real figure behind the blockade and I think is the figure now also blocking any attempts to resolve it as well. In the early weeks of the blockade, the, the Qataris feared a land invasion. Do you think that was a reasonable fear? It's hard to tell from open source information what exactly was planned. But I think that something for certain was in the moves. And we saw in September 2017, the Emir of Kuwait, Sheikh Sabah, go to the White House. And in his press conference afterwards with President Trump, uh, Sheikh Sabah said, what's important, thank God, is that we averted military action, which alerted, I think, a lot of people to the fact that something was planned. We just don't know what it was. Certainly the the, uh, the opinioning Doha in Qatar was very much that there was action being planned. And President Trump's tweets on the second day of the blockade, on the 6th of June, that a series of tweets supporting the move against Qatar and really were interpreted, I think, by many as giving the Saudis and Emiratis the green light. Uh, Sheikh Sabah of Kuwait then uh, went on a frenetic round of shuttle diplomacy and uh, was successful at least in preventing any escalation. And his comments in September were the most visible evidence that something military may have been planned. The Emir of Kuwait is, a, is 90 years old. He has been a foreign policy practitioner for more than 60 years, and he doesn't talk, uh, he doesn't say things without reason. And so I think there's every reason to believe that when he, he said there uh, had been a military action averted, you know, he meant it. The, the Qatari response to this blockade, diplomatic, political, economic, some analysts have said they're the adults in the room. How well has Qatar handled the diplomatic and economic fallout? Well, the, the blockade was accompanied by a really aggressive campaign in media and social media circles by the blockading states, the, especially Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE, but also Egypt and Bahrain to some extent that really was in some ways almost very, I mean, it was, it was very unbecoming and in some cases quite absurd. Um, for example, removing Qatar from a map in the Louvre Abu Dhabi or publishing a, a, a video graphic, which was highly dangerous, which showed a, a Qatar Airways jet being, being shot down. And the Qataris never went to that level. The Qataris instead responded by really putting the issues raised by the blockade into separate files and then seeking resolution of those files at international organizations such as the uh, the civil aviation international civil Av civil aviation authority or the the icj the international court of justice so seeking a an international uh, response to the the separate issues that were were at play in the blockade not stooping to the level of uh, for insult but rather kind of looking for a policy response. And again, kind of speaking to a broader issue, which is that in this time of this kind of age of populism, when people like Donald Trump and other leaders around the world are trying to undermine the rules-based international order, the Qatari has actually responded by appealing to that very rules-based international order and very much trying to show that they were the the ones who are responsible and mature and uh, 
worth trying to protect that international system and the regional system of the Gulf that had been undermined by such unilateral and unexpected action. Yes, and they, uh, for example, they kept the Dolphin Pipeline flowing gas to, to the Emirates, uh, despite the, the very drastic and radical uh, economic blockade that had very abruptly uh, placed on them. Well, exactly. That's one major, major sign. And the Qataris kept the, the pipeline running, uh, in part because there was acknowledgement in Doha that uh, if they shut the pipeline, especially in June, the height of summer, when energy demand is at its greatest, it would have been a it would have been a form of collective punishment that would have affected people in the UAE that would have had nothing to do with the actions of their leadership. And so again, it, it really showed that um, the blockade was politically driven by elements in the UAE especially, but they also didn't want to jeopardize some of their energy reliance on, on Qatar, which has continued to this day. There is the sense that the Saudis would perhaps like to end the dispute, but that Mohammed bin Zayed is in no hurry to do so. What does he gain by perpetuating the blockade? Well, there were hopes uh, towards the end of 2019 that uh, talks, or at least uh, reaching out between the Saudis and Qataris, would lead to a thaw in Saudi-Qatari relations. And certainly it seemed for a time that they might actually succeed. Uh, there was some degree of goodwill. Uh, the Qatari chief of staff, for example, took part in a chief of staff meeting of the GCC in Saudi Arabia following the attacks on Saudi Aramco in September 2019. That was appreciated by the Saudi leadership. Uh, the uh, Gulf Cup of Nations in football or soccer was held in Qatar in December. Bahrain beat Saudi Arabia in the final. There was a sense of goodwill that was, had been missing for much of the previous three years. That never happened. That, that breakthrough never, never happened. And I think in part because Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia spent four days with Mohammed bin Zayed at the end of November last year, 2019, at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and a meeting of the Saudi Emirati Coordination Council. And at that meeting, it seems that Mohammed bin Zayed successfully uh, prevailed upon Mohammed bin Salman that uh, reconciliation was not in the interests of the, uh, the four blockading states. Uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, I think, doesn't want to make the first move. I think he feels that uh, uh, the, the divisions are deep, so deep that uh, any move by him to, to sort of back away would be admission of defeat. Certainly the blockade hasn't achieved its objectives. It hasn't isolated Qatar. It had almost no regional support. And what little support it had, for example, Jordan downgrading ties in Senegal as well, uh, was then reversed. Both Jordan and Senegal have since upgraded them back to normal levels. So I think uh, a sense that having failed to achieve any of the objectives in 2017, uh, to be making the first move would be admitting defeat. And uh, so we, we, we have a sort of situation, I think, where we're stuck, where almost the all parties can live with a blockade. Um, which hasn't yet been decisive enough to make any one party feel pressured into making that first uh, concession. Now, in your book, you're highly critical of the Trump administration. Had Washington played a, a better, a, a firmer hand, do you think the feud could have been averted? Well, in January 2018, Ben Rhodes, who served on the National Security Council during President Obama's two terms in office, 
stated that you're seeing now several events which we've tried hard to prevent from happening when we were in office. And you actually mentioned the, the blockade of Qatar specifically as one of those events. And one gets the impression that in 2014, during the iteration of the crisis then, with the withdrawal of the ambassadors, the UAE especially might have liked to have gone further, but uh, were well aware that uh, the, the US administration would not, uh, would not tolerate uh, its uh, partners in the Gulf uh, facing off against each other in such a way. Uh, President Trump's arrival in office in January 2017 removed that constraint. And I think the, the, the UAE especially and the Saudis also made a fundamental miscalculation when they seemed to have assumed that if they could have won the support of the White House, then the whole of the US government would swing into line. And they, so it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of US government. I think one can explain why that miscalculation was made by observing that the Trump administration itself came into office proclaiming that things were different, that they were now in charge and they were going to do things their way. And if you recall the, the way the travel ban on Muslim-majority countries was announced in the very first week of the Trump administration, it was really a, a feeling that rules don't matter anymore, that institutions are no longer as relevant as they were. And so with the Trump administration feeling they could do whatever they wanted, it's perhaps um, unsurprising that other you know, sort of foreign partners of the US uh, thought that applied to foreign affairs as well. So yes, it's, um, I think the Trump administration created the landscape within which the, the protagonists behind the blockade felt they could uh, take advantage of it, perhaps a once in a, literally a once in a lifetime opportunity to achieve something they'd wanted to do for, 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 for many years and to really sort of uh, put pressure on the Qataris and to do so at a time when the U.S. wouldn't push back. Well, it's interesting, too, isn't it, that uh, President Trump then rode back and indeed he's, he met with Sheikh Tamim and there has been efforts by the State Department and various Pentagon officials to try and end this blockade, but it remains uh, firm, seemingly firm as ever. Well, as we as the Trump administration's first term in office approaches an end, I think we we see the, the blockade as an example of one uh, aspect of uh, policy that uh, they allowed either f deliberately or just through not having a firmer hand, they allowed to get out of hand in which they can no longer resolve. We've seen the, the Trump administration swing back into support pretty quickly, actually, over the summer of 2017 of support of a resolution. Uh, the fact that the Secretaries of State and Defense at the time were uh, James Mattis, who had served as head of Central Command for headquarters in Doha, and Rex Tillerson, who for many years had been head of ExxonMobil, which has extremely large uh, energy interests in Qatar, meant that they were an immediate counterweight to President Trump. And in fact, they were critical in the opening two days of the blockade in telling the president that Qatar is a vital U.S. partner, a vital security and energy partner of the U.S. And this is not a black and white situation as the UAE and Saudi were trying to portray. This wasn't the case, for example, of the U.S. and Iran, where there's a, a good actor. I mean, the Saudis and Iran, for, where there's a sort of good actor in U.S. eyes and a bad actor. Where this, is, this is very different. And so, I mean, the U.S., uh, it's the Trump administration and Trump himself, I think, had uh, signed off on that by, by September 2017. And actually, Sheikh Tamim is still able to come to Washington, uh, for various reasons, Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman have felt unable to come to the U.S. since 2017. And that gives the Qataris a pretty decent hand to play when, when 
at least Trump's kind of modus operandi is uh, so heavily reliant on sort of personal FaceTime with, with foreign leaders. But yes, the US administration now is very much in support of a resolution, in part because as they ramped up their pressure on Iran, uh, there's a feeling in the U.S. that uh, having uh, the, the Gulf states sort of undermining each other is, is highly detrimental to that uh, maximum pressure campaign that Trump launched in 2019. With COVID-19, there is this sense of uh, countries pulling together, coming together. Do you think that uh, there's a possibility as the Gulf emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic that there might be uh, some sort of uh, reconciliation? Well, COVID-19 and the scale of dislocation, economic disruption, and really the need for a coordinated response really should make it very clear that countries need to cooperate and not confront each other, especially countries in, within regions. At the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis in early February, there were reports that the Qatari Minister of Health was actually denied permission to enter Saudi Arabia for a meeting of GCC health ministers which, if, if that was true, was extremely, an extreme, it was another indication that certainly the crisis is continuing to undermine region-wide activity and cooperation and coordination. That may have been early on. It may be now that the scale of the crisis is so great that uh, you know, they need to coordinate. On the other hand, we have seen every GCC country pursue individual national-level policies, as have others, for example, European countries within the European Union. So to some extent, the GCC, again, is struggling to stay relevant just because each government has taken uh, matters into its own hands and pursued national level policies to try and, uh, try and confront the pandemic, at least in this initial stage. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see in a post-flattening the curve sort of recovery phase whether that leads to any greater cooperation, but it's certainly more needed now. And, COVID-19 has very much shown that people have to work together and we haven't seen much of that in the GCC in the last three years. What are the longer-term implications of this dispute? How, for example, will it affect security if there is no resolution? Well, the dispute has certainly changed security assumptions. If you're now in Doha, you would view the UAE and especially Abu Dhabi as a main security threat. So it certainly recast uh, security assumptions and certainly the GCC came together in 1981 in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war, the Iranian revolution, because there was a conviction among the six Gulf states that for all their slight differences in political and economic uh, orientation, they were better together. They did at least have a, a share, a, a common interest in coming together against an external aggressor, well, that common interest is really broken down. Um, I think also the, the way the Trump administration, Trump himself, initially turned against Qatar in 2017 is, has been a shock, not just to the Qataris, but to all the other smaller Gulf states who, since the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq in 1990, have always seen the US as the external guarantor of last, of, of first resort, in fact, not even last resort, and for a few days at least, that seemed to be thrown into question in twenty in twenty seventeen. So I think the, the the lesson from that very much has been don't have all your security eggs in one basket and balance uh, balance security relationships across different countries. And of course, the Qataris have done that with Turkey. The UAE has got a closer relationship now with Russia. 
uh, Saudis had until the OPEC plus uh, breakdown. It's it's made very much. I think we're moving into a post-American Gulf to some extent, just because uh, for the first time since 1990, a country that had been seen as the underpinning of the security system in the Gulf was suddenly questioned in terms of taking sides and uh, really almost um, sort of throwing one of its partners uh, to the wolves, uh, at least temporarily. And so that's had, a, that's had an impact. Finally, Christian, what do you think? Will it get sorted anytime soon, or is this feud likely to drag on? Well, I had been hopeful and optimistic at the end of 2019 that at least on a Saudi level, the blockade in the sense that the only land border between only Qatar's only land border has been closed, the one with Saudi for three and a half, well, for three years. I thought at least the Saudi aspects would be eased and perhaps the blockade could be peeled away in terms of one or two countries peeling off. That hasn't happened. I think we we're stuck in a holding pattern, as I, as I mentioned earlier, where neither none of the parties feel they have to make the first concession. Now, that, of course, is a pre-COVID-19 um, assumption. I think we're now in such a different age that um, all bets are off. But I, I still feel that um, on a political level, uh, the UAE and Abu Dhabi especially, and Mohammed bin Zayed is so much in, in charge of kind of UAE foreign and regional policy making that I don't think he wants to see this uh, issue ended. I think also even if there is a, a reconciliation at a political level, um, such as being the animosity of media, social media, of insults, of aggression online, that uh, certainly a lot of people in the countries involved will you know, may find it sort of difficult to forget and even to just forgive um, just because it's been so so bad-tempered, and the blockade itself has affected individuals, it's affected families, unlike previous rifts in the Gulf, including the 2014 um, uh, iteration of this row, they were confined to political elites, they were confined to government to government, whereas the, the blockade, by its very nature being a blockade, kind of interrupting movement, separating families, and that's had a much wider impact, and so I think it'll be harder just to end this by a a political reconciliation and an agreement, if, 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 even if that can be, can, can be reached. Christian, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. His most recent book, Qatar and the Gulf Crisis, was published in February by Hearst. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, a central reading from independent sources.